One of the most telling and gruesome examples from the Orientalist project is the case of Sarah Bartman. She was an African woman who was exhibited naked across multiple locations in England. After her death, her body was dissected and it was concluded that her large genitals meant that she was promiscuous. This formed wider cultural assumptions about race, gender and sexuality and against people of colonized regions. But was this treatment of dehumanization and commodification limited to Africa or did it stretch across to India? This is the For All Time's Sake podcast by Thyasology, hosted by Eric Chopra and Kudrat Singh. In this podcast, we dive deep into the fascinating and multi-layered past of India, all while keeping histories of emotions and experiences at the core of our discussions. Here at Thyasology, we believe that nobody should feel left out of history. We are not just sharing stories about the big names, dates and places. We are also uncovering hidden gems from the footnotes of history. From overarching themes like society, polity and economy to histories of art, gender, sexuality, fashion, horror and more. We have got you covered. Welcome to this captivating historical journey. Hello everybody. This is Eric Chopra and this is Kudrat Singh and welcome to another episode of our old times sake biotheology. So, Kudrat, we began this series with talking about a figure from history that has captured our imagination for as long as I can remember. As the buzzword for the last episode goes, fascinating. fascinating. The fascinating dancing girl from Mohenjo-daro, from the Harappan civilization. Now, earlier we were looking at this period that stretches from 2600 BCE to 1900 BCE. and in this episode we are actually going all the way ahead to the 19th century of the common era and where are we situating ourselves today so we were talking only about one figure from the period you just mentioned in our last episode but this time our conversation is going to be far more sweeping there's going to be lots of important theories and concepts that are going to come into play and instead of talking about our fascination with the harappan civilization we are instead going to talk about how the african and asian populations of the world captured the imagination of the empires right so we are talking about exoticization we are talking about orientalism we are talking about a very significant exhibition that takes place in 1886 but before that i think it's important to talk about indian travel to england in the 19th century and specifically in the period where we are looking at the dissolution of the east india company its replacement by the british raj wherein you see queen victoria being proclaimed as the empress of india however much before this indians were traveling to england i mean when we look at indian history and we are discussing modern history in schools the larger focus is on the british being in india and the sort of political and economic consequences that this movement in history unfolded but we are looking at also a movement out of indians to england you know it goes back to the 17th century actually and to establish some context as early as when jahangir was the mughal 
king in 1614. You know, there is this scholar, Rosina Vishram, who has recorded the history of Indian domestic help and nannies, ayahs, coming to England with English families. She talks about some of the help in sailors being the earliest Indian working class settlers in England. But what we're talking specifically about today is actually the exoticization of Indians in England. Such as in the Colonial and India exhibition in 1886. And this exoticization actually stretches much beyond Indians themselves. And it encompasses most of the colonized people mm. of the time. And exoticization is one of the many expressions of this broader idea that we call Orientalism. Yeah. Now, Orientalism is best described in Edward Said's book of the same name. And Oriental thought rests on a patronization of Asian and African cultures. Basically, all non-Western, non-Christian people and civilizations. And there was an immense scale of dissemination of stereotypes about the people who inhabited these regions, people who came to be colonized. And the colonized people were believed to be primitive, to be violent, irrational, underdeveloped, overly zealous about religion. And all of this was to justify that they deserve to be ruled, they deserve to be colonized. And the impact of Orientalism was not limited to just writing or scholarly works or novels. It also spilled over into scientific research, which was a worrying development. And as we will see in this episode, Orientalism actually found its grandest expression in cultural displays in Western Europe, such as in the exhibition that Eric just mentioned, and also in paintings and surveys and gazettes. And it came to dominate the way that the Europeans perceived much of Asia and Africa. Yes, so there is this, you know, grand exotic view, which dominated even the early years in which Indian history was being sort of confronted. You know, the, the, the question of whether India ever had a history. Yeah. And if there was a history, what kind of history it is. So historiography also in its initial years, when it's talking about Indian history, deals with these ideas of Orientalism and exoticization. And, and what comes to mind actually is the ways in which numerous Indians who were going to England in the 19th century, how was it that they were being perceived? Now, we'll talk a bit about historiography in a bit, but since we're talking about Orientalism, what comes to my mind, you know, immediately is the Oriental troop. Yes. Right? So the Oriental troop from Lucknow, who were a part of the King of Awadh's court. Now, this is a troop that reaches England in February 1868. And it includes numerous artists. And these are artists who can perform a range of fascinating acts, right? You have a blind folded contortionist who could thread a needle with her toes. You have an acrobat who could walk on tightrope with buffalo horns tied to his feet. And you have a magician who could make animals appear out of thin air. Now, John Zubrisky has talked about the Oriental troupe in his book, Jaduwala's Jugglers and Jinns. And he talks about how this troupe was performing at the best of places, right? You have the Theatre Royal and the Crystal Palace. Now, while Western audiences were absolutely dazzled by these performances, the reporting of this troupe by the British media actually was very patronizing in nature. Mm. And Yurozubrisky talks about how newspapers could not resist, I quote him, quote, 
playing up stereotypes of a passive and primitive India that Britain was duty bound to rule over and civilize. Yes, and this is especially important because orientalism is often downplayed as a purely cultural construction with only cultural implications, but there was an orientalist project whose aim was to deny the existence of civil society in all of these places that were colonized. And its implications went far beyond the cultural realm and they spilled over into the social and political and economic spheres of these areas as well. And the aim was that if the subcontinent or Northern Africa or the Middle East were portrayed in poor light, then Western scientific temper and so-called modernity naturally seemed like better alternatives for people who were simply deemed unfit to govern themselves. Right. And you know, like, for example, these performances, I mean, it was not only reduced to mere entertainment, but there was a dehumanization in, in the relation that the audience established with the troop and themselves because they clearly saw themselves as superior. And this yeah. as, you know, a purely entertaining act by an inferior society. Yes. And and this reflects not only when the performances are going on, but also beyond the stage. You know, we have this history of this Oriental troop being treated very unfairly. Mm-hmm. They'd gone to the local police stations and complained about the non-payment of their wages for like 10 months. Wow. So we, we have a history that's, you know, steeped in a sense of looking at these people as the other and treating them with inequality and reducing them to objects of entertainment. Absolutely. And what comes to my mind when I hear this is the case of Sarah Bartman, Mm, who was, of course, one of the most telling and gruesome examples of Orientalist undertakings. And this was actually an African woman who was exhibited naked across multiple locations in England. And after her death, her body was dissected. And it was then concluded that she was promiscuous and many other negative connotations were attached to her. And this formed wider cultural assumptions, not only about race, not only about region, but also about gender and sexuality. You know, saying that women of colonized regions were inherently immoral, inherently not honorable. And this, I think, is representative of the commodification and dehumanization of the Africans, just as the troop is representative of their dehumanization in Britain. Absolutely. And, you know, Kudra, this deeply tragic, unjust, unfair history of using humans as objects of display. And we see this best come to light at the Colonial and India Exhibition in 1886, which runs for six months. And it is celebrated in Queen Victoria's, for Queen Victoria's Jubilee. And it wanted to represent, and Saloni Mathur in her book, India by Design, has actually done a fabulous job of describing how all of this unfolded. So we see the Times in London reporting at the time that in this exhibition, you see at a single step, the visitor being carried from the wild, mad whirl of the individual competitive struggle for existence to which civilization has been reduced to in the ever-changing West into the stately splendor of that unchanging antique life of the East, the tradition of which has been preserved in the pristine purity only in India. 
Now, I want to highlight this line, right? Stately splendor of that unchanging antique life of the East, the tradition of which has been preserved in the pristine purity only in India. I think this pretty much summarizes Oriental thought with regards to India. Absolutely. This this view of India as the land of mystique and riches was common in Europe and within India itself, as we talked about in the beginning of the episode, right? In the years of historiography, when it was being formed, the way in which India was pictured was this land of riches and mystique. So Romila Thapar, in one of her early works on Indian history, described how India was often perceived as a place of snake charmers, maharajas, and incredible feats like the rope trick. Of because, course. of course, rope <laughs> trick is the defining moment in Indian history. Now, so in many ways, this exhibition that happens in 1886, it aims to recreate a tranquil Indian village far removed from this industrialized chaos. And it embodies the notions of pristine purity. Now, Mathur discusses how the exhibition featured numerous structures and pavilions, courtyards, gardens. It used artificial lighting that was powered by electricity. And the interior areas were deliberately kept dimly lit to evoke the ambience of oriental fantasy. It's like how we talk about in those movies in Hollywood where they're looking at places like India, they put that particular filter, right? Like yes. what's that, that sort of orange yeah. filter to give a sense of this is India. Yes, and that one eerie tone that they play every time they're in yes, the Middle East. Yes, I know. This this sort of, you know, I don't know what how to describe that tone, but the I think in their minds, when they think about India or I think Middle East, the idea is to evoke the image of Aladdin for some reason. No matter what the story <laughs> is, it comes back to defining how you would think about Aladdin. Now, so we see at this exhibition in 1886, this oriental fantasy being recreated. Indian village being recreated not through just objects, but by showcasing the traditional craft skills that had made India a model for the Victorians. We see a figure called the Indian craftsman that was symbolizing literally the timelessness of the Indian village. And that is absolutely a representation of how the West saw India. It was nothing but a collection of villages ruled over by the classic Oriental despot who had nothing to do with people living in the villages. And this wasn't the only time that such an exhibition was actually put up or such a project was undertaken. Mm. You see the great exhibition of 1851 before this, as well as the World's Fairs, both before and after this, which were all grand displays of, quite frankly, the power and the wealth of empires, if nothing else. And these were not ordinary fairs. They were not fairs how we would imagine them. Instead, it was like the whole city, the whole city of London or the whole city of Paris in 1900, for example, was transformed to show this image of West versus East, to show this image of change versus continuity, So there were dedicated pavilions for each colony. There was a Ceylon pavilion, there was an Indian pavilion. And the size of these pavilions was shockingly large. It was almost to scale with the actual temple or the actual palace or the actual mosque that it was modeled after. So these weren't ordinary pavilions that we see maybe in parades these days. And when you stepped into the pavilion, like you said, you were transported into, of course, a much exoticized and sanitized version of the actual colony. The lens one goes to, to just recreate this oriental fantasy, it's, it's, I mean, it's disturbing almost, isn't it? It is. Right, so now, 
1886, the exhibition, Colonial and Indian Exhibition, unfolds. What do we see? There is on display Native Number 16. The name of Native Number 16, Tulsi Ram. The exhibition tells people that he is from Agra. He is a sweet maker. And so like is, a halwai. Yes, he's a halwai. Yeah. And, and he is 42. Okay. Now, he is one of the people who have been displayed, right? Yes. Mathur also talks about how there were 33 other Indian men featured at the exhibition. And they were all renowned for some skill or the other in various crafts. You know, weaving, coppersmithing, ivory miniature painting, clay figure making, among others. But here's the interesting thing. Tulsi Ram, identified as a sweet maker from Agra, is actually a Punjabi villager. And he is a part of this larger history that is completely erased at the exhibition because there he is a sweet maker from Agra. But actually, he is this Punjabi villager who had come to England to seek justice for a local land dispute that he was facing in India. And for that, guess who he comes to? Queen Victoria. By that time, the Empress of India. Wow, none other than the Empress herself. The other people on display also actually have interesting stories apart from Tulsi Ram because as Saloni Mathur points out, a majority of them were actually prison inmates mm. who were lodged at the Agra jail. And among them, there were also homeless Indians who were living on the streets of England. And they were put on the exhibition. They were chosen by exhibition officials and they were put on display. And so from the exterior, you know, the Western world that was gathered in London at the time, they thought that the British had brought these talented so-called artisans and craftspersons to show their skill and their tradition in far-off England. But these same figures were actually convicts back in India. And of course, this was not mentioned anywhere in the exhibition. Yeah. They were victims of the stringent law and order situation in the British Empire's largest colony. They were forcefully taken halfway across the world in most cases. They were kept there for six months, almost like caged animals in a circus. They begged to be reunited with their families, again, as Mathur points out, but to no avail. Yeah. And, and it's infuriating to think about it, Kutrat, because... You're looking at these people for such a large part of history being seen as the problem, mm. as the other's problem, right? How do you, for example, place them in England? Where do they go? And the idea that, you know, keeps emerging in records is that it's embarrassing to have these people in that country. Mm. But at the same time, these people are then being used at the exhibition and being museumized, mm. being kept on display with, you know, these tags of a sweet maker mm -hmm. or a carpenter or an artisan in some field. Yes, and it is these same exhibitions or the series of world's fairs where you actually see things like the Kohinoor being put on display. Yeah. So these people with traditional skills are put at par with such looted objects, but we don't know their real stories. Yeah, yeah. But with Tulsi Ram, you know, 
he was not somebody who was escaping jail right mm-hmm. he was of course jailed when he did come to england but he was not escaping any sort of punishment from india itself right you see that in 1885 a year before this exhibition takes place tulsi ram this villager from punjab travels to london seeking justice for that land dispute in his village for this he ends up being repeatedly arrested uh, because he would stage you know his request outside uh, queen victoria's residence at windsor now tulsi ram insisted that he will stay in london until his problems were fixed that his property was taken away in india by a man called raja ram now there were officials at the time who considered using the police to convince him to return to india with the home office actually covering the expenses but no he was determined i will not return to india i want the queen to hear me out she is the empress of india isn't she yes. so why won't she listen to me and you know find a solution from my problem now there were of course as you were saying you know the people who were exhibited at this exhibition so many of them were already inmates so there were doubts about tulsi ram's story too but the lieutenant governor of punjab actually goes ahead to verify tulsi ram's story when a correspondence from him comes so a telegram confirmed that tulsi ram had actually lost a lawsuit against raja ram in his village 5 years earlier to when this moment in history happens and now after it had failed over there it was being appealed in london and like you mentioned it was interesting that tulsi ram was determined to plead his case mm-hmm. and not only had he fought this in court but he'd also taken the route of petitions mm-hmm. to plead his case now it's interesting to note that at the same time you have the first group of indian moderate nationalists who were also demanding their rights and concessions through petitions through pleas through appeals and letters and they were trying to speak to the british empire and to negotiate with the state in their own language of law and modernity that the europeans had taken with them wherever they went and yet please like those of tulsi ram had no result at the end absolutely and you know it is actually interesting to know that this is this history of petitions associated with tulsi ram and the sort of hopelessness that he has after sending each petition that actually leads him to being in london right so tulsi ram after his initial petition was against that raja ram yeah. it was rejected by the chief court in lahore so he sent two more petitions to the viceroy in shimla mm. when this viceroy relocated to calcutta he followed and sent two additional petitions but mm. all were being met with the same outcome there was hopelessness all around and then you see finally after the insistence of this amritsari merchant sher singh who also later betrays him tulsi ram going to rangoon and there he works for another merchant for a year and then he saves enough money to actually go to england but um, even when he was in england we have already discussed right it was absolutely here too there was hopelessness these petitions proved to be a failure now mathur talks about how we don't know what led to tulsi ram being selected as a sweet maker on display for this exhibition but there he was on may 4th 1886 now by the end of this month he was arrested yet again and at this time he had totally given up after his long journey of 
confronting with the law and and of resilience yes of not giving up of of actually interpreting that if one says that they are the empress of india mm-hmm. then they should hear my problem yes. even if it is of a local land dispute all the way in punjab but when he is arrested at the end of may he agrees to leave for india and by june he was sent for india but before leaving tulsi ram did write a final petition in which he talks to queen victoria and this is i think his most moving petition yeah. of all the records that we have of his journey yes so he says and i quote the petition of your humble servant tulsi ram is that your worship's obedient servant is neither a rogue a vagabond or a criminal of any sort nor is he a monomaniac of any description whatever that ever since your worship's servant has set his foot in this city he has been treated like a common criminal for what crime he knows not this cruel injustice has not only added to his sufferings but has defiled him in a religious sense prayeth that your worship's humble servant may no longer be treated as a criminal or a madman but that he may be protected as a poor stranger in this strange land your worship's most humble and obedient servant tulsi ram so those were the last words that we have in written record from tulsi ram and even in his last letter we see his resilience and determination and his words i feel are not only tulsi ram's alone but they reflect the views of a mass of south asian people at this time all falling under the british empire because we have to keep in mind that by the 1880s the british government had been around for about 100 years and had considerably expanded the territory under its rule since the preceding century yes so even though the people had not chosen the british empire they still expected and hoped that the empire and its officials would deliver justice that very justice that they had long propounded as their import into india and the bombay and calcutta high courts had already been set up by the 1880s and at least in monuments justice seemed to be within reach it seemed like a viable possibility but that was not the case and the oriental world view came in the way of delivering justice as well as of course the superiority complex of the west and of the british empire that as well came in the way of all the other pillars of modernity alongside justice that the british empire spoke of back in england absolutely kotrat and you know it's stories like that of tulsi ram that remind me of these undocumented histories that we find in our footnotes these are stories of resilience these are stories that constantly remind me that history goes beyond the mainstream historical narratives that we are so familiarized with and that is the aim of ethnology and this podcast to bring such stories to all of you so thank you for listening to another episode of the for all time sake podcast by ethnology and for more do head over to our instagram page where we document many more such stories from the indian past and bring them to you and this is kudrat singh 
and this is Eric Chopra and we'll be back soon with another episode of the For All Time's Sake podcast by Itihasology. 